Morning. Uh, my name is David Soren. I'm the lead pastor here at Renovation Church. Um, morning to you. Hey, this is going to be such an exciting seven or eight days for our church. We are so excited about this. We've been looking forward to this for a really long time with so many things happening uh, today. And then, of course, grand opening is uh, next Sunday. And with so many things happening, I really wanted to look at a passage of scripture this morning that I think will be really helpful for us as we navigate all these different things that are happening. So everybody grab a Bible. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles under the chair. We're going to be on page 683. uh, Or you can open up to uh, Mark chapter 2 if you brought your own Bible. Or you can use your phone. You just use the Renovation Church app and tap Bible and weekly verses. So we're going to look at a story from kind of early on in Jesus's ministry. So word about Jesus is starting to spread and the crowds are starting to grow and everybody wants to go and hear Jesus and people are telling their friends to come and hear about Jesus, except there were some that weren't able to make it there on their own. So let's take a look at what happened. So page 683, Mark chapter two, we're going to start right at, excuse me, verse one. Here's what it says. This is a few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Okay, now in the passage, then Jesus goes on to teach about how he is the son of God. He is the Messiah and that he can indeed forgive sins. And then he validates that very truth by healing the man as well. And the paralyzed man gets up and walks. But what I really want to focus on today is really the first part of the passage, the part that we read So think about this setting. Picture it in your mind. Jesus is there. He's teaching in a house. It is absolutely packed. I mean, the Messiah is on earth. People are packed in like sardines. There's not a square inch to even move. But these four men are so desperate to get their friend to Jesus that they're going to do whatever it takes. Now, in those days, houses almost always had an exterior stairway that you could take up to the roof of the house. And so the four men, they get to the house, it's packed, they climb the stairs, and they literally start digging, the scriptures say, through the roof. Now, roasts in those days, or roof if you're from a different part of the country and you say it wrong, um, (laughs) roasts in those days were made of a thatch and kind of dirt and clay, and it was all kind of packed in over beams. And these guys dig a hole in somebody's house because that's how passionately they want to get their friends to Jesus. Okay, so based on these five verses of scripture, I really have two, I think, really important questions for you this morning. And the first question is this. Who is going to carry you to Jesus when you need it? So when your life gets hard, or maybe even sin starts pulling you away from God, or your spiritual heart begins to just grow lukewarm, who is it in your life that is going to say, hey, friend, let me help you. Let me serve you. I'm praying for you. I feel like you're drifting. Let me bring you back. Who is going to carry you to Jesus when you need it? Because there's going to be times in your life when you will. Life is not all mountains. It's full of valleys. I was reading a a leadership book this summer, 
And in the, uh, in the book, the author gave this illustration that I think is really helpful to what we're talking about this morning. And he told of a time of his life when he was in for just kind of a routine outpatient surgery. And as he was getting ready for the surgery, the nurse stuck an IV in his arm. And he just kind of said, well, what, you know, this is pretty routine stuff. Like, what's, what's that for? And she said, well, it's just a precaution. Like, if an emergency happens, we'll be ready. She said, in a sense, you're pre-wired for crisis. And I think that's a really good question for your life. Are you pre-wired for crisis? See, I think this is actually a huge question for the American church right now. Because the way that most Americans are trying to live out and do church doesn't look like pre-wired for crisis. See, across the country, American Christians of modern day might be the most isolated Christians in all of history. Now, that sounds like an exaggeration, and maybe it is if you look through all of history in different countries and war and all that kind of stuff, but just think about this, at least for our country, right? Even societal trends alone, there might be enough data there. Like People nowadays socialize at what, maybe 10% of what their great-grandparents did? And on top of that, you throw COVID, and on top of that, you throw these changing trends in the church in America where so many Christians have reduced church to just something that you consume or something that you could just podcast. And what's happened is most American Christians are more isolated from actual other real Christians than they ever have been before. Now, when your life is going great and everything's sort of working out, walking and the Christian life that way, it doesn't even really seem that risky. But when a crisis hits, and you haven't pre-wired yourself with Christian community, real Christians that are close to you in your life, then that crisis can break you. Who's gonna carry you to Jesus if a crisis hits in your life this week? Our society just isn't ready for this. Our Christian culture isn't ready for this. I I can literally tell you story after story after story from the past few years where people have come to us as leaders or as pastors, and they say, can you help? And they'll say, it's my brother or my dad or or my best friend, they attend church, but it's like once a month somewhere. Or a lot of people nowadays actually say, my relative or my friend, they attend, they watch this church online that they stream, it's actually in a different state, but they've had a crisis, and the problem is they don't actually know any other Christians. Can you help them? Friends, that may be what the church is starting to look like in America today, but that is not how the Bible describes church. Church in Scripture is a body. That's the metaphor. It's a body of people coming together, and when one is hurting, we carry that person to Jesus. I mean, that's a huge part of what our house groups are all about. We've been talking about house groups all summer, waiting for this moment today where we could finally launch them again in a really normal way. Uh, If you're newer around here, uh, maybe this summer or maybe today's your first time, you've become in the last couple of weeks, uh, house groups are our groups of about 30 people together in a group that meet together weekly and an astounding 80% of our adults are in a house group every week. That's a crazy number. And that's because they're actually just that good. Okay, so what are they? Uh, House groups spend about half of their night in a large group, and our groups are intergenerational. So you have 18-year-olds to 
88-year-olds in a group, right? They spend about half their night in a large group, hanging out together, making friends, uh, and then eventually one person in the group will share a faith story to the whole group of what God's been doing in their uh, life lately. Then they'll all uh, get to watch a, a video that we do. It's who's ever teaching the Bible here on a Sunday morning uh, does that video where they just dive in deeper into scripture for about five or six minutes of whatever we've been teaching on. And then for the second half of the night, we actually break into small groups of four to seven people all throughout the house. And it gives you a chance, an opportunity to go deeper in friendships and deeper in scripture and begin to just apply it to your own life. And we now have 12 different house groups on five different nights, including two brand new house groups that we're launching this fall. And you can see there was a little card on your chair when you walked in this morning. You can see all that information, including which groups are new and all that kind of stuff on that card. But perhaps the greatest thing about house groups is what happens outside of the group. Because house groups gives you Christian friends that you can do life together with. You know, I think house groups, in a sense, gives you your own small church where you can really be known. Because this is not a small church. Right? This is not a huge church. But it's not a small church. It's not like there are 30 people that go to this church or 50 people. But it gives you a small church where you can really be known by other people. And I will tell you, house groups helps you grow spiritually. It's like, think of a, an old fireplace when they used to have coals in them. A coal in the group stays hot but turns cold when it's not. By itself, the fire goes out. But in the group, it stays hot. It stays warm. That's a picture, a metaphor of the spiritual heat and vitality you can have when you're not isolated, when you're actually with other Christians. You know, last week, I reached out to our amazing house leaders, and I said, would you all be able to share with me how you're seeing this sort of stuff in your groups? Where people are carrying other people to Jesus and caring for other people. And they told me stories. Uh, one leader told me stories, he told me a story of in their house group, they had three babies born in two months, and yet each time their house group, the group of people, provided almost daily meals for these families in this transition. Every day, they're showing up their house, here's another meal, we're taking care of you, we love you. We want you to be known like that. Now you might say, people don't live like that anymore, where there's people, we do, we do. Because that's what we see in scripture. Another leader told me a story of how their group helped one of the families in their house group when that family was just in a really dark time. And they prayed for them. They provided a lot of emotional support. Because that person was in a group, the group even knew of some resources that were really helpful to their family because they weren't isolated and there were other people around them. Uh, another leader told me a story of one of their house group members that hit a really serious financial need. Right? Sometimes that happens. And so the group, aware of the need, and unbeknownst to the member, decided they were going to help them out. And when they were ready to give the person the, the financial help, the leader asked the person and said, okay, well, just let's get specific. Like, how much do you think we're really talking about? And the person said, well, honestly, it's, it's like $1,000. And guess how much the group had raised? $1,000. You know, other groups told me stories of how they rallied around a brand new believer in their group, how they spent extra time discipling him, helping him grow in their faith. Or another group told of how they prayed for years for one of the group members, for her husband, to come to Christ. 
They loved and served him. And then they got to watch as he came to Christ. And now that couple is hosting a house group this year. I mean, just how amazing is this, right? I mean, friends, listen. Church, as the Bible describes it, is not just coming on a Sunday morning, hearing a message, and getting fed. Okay, that's how we like to describe it in America. The church is people coming together, doing life together. It's spurring one another on toward love and good deeds, as Hebrew says. It's having people in your life that are going to help you be passionate about following Jesus. And we want to let you have friends in your life that are going to carry you to Jesus. And the amazing thing is, we can provide that. That is the beauty of this church and the house group's system. So please, Whatever you do, whatever you do, when we get to house group signups later in the service, sign up for a house group, okay? All right, I told you I had two questions for you from this passage. So let's look at these questions. The first one was, who is going to carry you to Jesus when you need it? And the second question is, who do you need to carry to Jesus? Right? It's the inverse question. Flip the roles. Who is it in your life? Maybe it's a friend or a mentor or a neighbor family member, someone that you're mentoring. I mean, it could be anyone. Who is it that you need to help carry to Jesus? You need to maybe share your faith with them. I just read yesterday, LifeWay Research came out with this amazing study. You look this, Google it. Uh, and the, what they found was 71% of unchurched people in America have never had anyone explain to them what it is to be a Christian. 71%. It's unreal. Who do you need to just explain to someone how to follow Jesus? Maybe buy them a Bible. Maybe send them just a video of just Christian teaching. Or maybe it's just as simple as inviting them to grand opening at Renovation Church next Sunday. Who do you need to carry to Jesus? You look at this passage, and one of the things that stands out is Jesus is just so pleased with these four friends. I don't know if you saw this in verse 5, but I want to show you something. It's a really interesting word here. Verse 5, it says, When Jesus saw their faith. He said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Now notice it doesn't say when Jesus saw his faith. Now certainly the paralyzed man also had to have faith, right? Or this wouldn't work. But Jesus is just so happy. He's so pleased that these guys ripped open somebody's roof. (laughs) He just loves it, right? These four men felt an urgency for evangelism. Like, think about their situation. Okay, they've got a friend. He's in dire need. Word gets out. Jesus is in town. You have no idea how long Jesus is going to be in town for. And so they got to get their friend to Jesus, like, now. And in any way they can. They feel an urgency for evangelism. And we should feel the same urgency, but we don't. Because we always fall for the illusion of, oh, I'll have more time. But I just want to tell you, if you could go 10 million years into the future and look back at your life on earth, one of the things that you would reflect on is just the absolute necessity of the urgency of evangelism while you're on earth. And also, I think in a lot of ways, when we truly experience the love of Jesus, when somebody carries us to Jesus, we just naturally want to carry others. In a sense, you are carried to carry. I just think we, as a church, We have an incredible opportunity in front of us this next week, and that is the grand opening of this space. Now, there are so many different methods of evangelism, of sharing your faith, and I am an absolute fan of every single one of them. 
But we've been talking a lot lately, the last few weeks, about invitational evangelism, just inviting someone to church. And we're doing that simply because of this amazing opportunity that's right in front of us. And because we know people in our culture, it's just kind of the suburban way, I think, are so open to grand openings. And so I urge you, have a sense of urgency. Do not miss this critical opportunity. Challenge yourself. Text your friend before you go to sleep tonight. Invite them to come. Call them up. Send them a message on social media. On your way out today, we're going to hand you uh, invite cards to invite people in person. Make it a goal that you're going to give away every single one of those before you get to next Sunday. Trust God. For many of you that have been here for a little while, there are a lot of people in your life that you maybe couldn't invite. When we kind of just very quietly and softly opened this place up in February, there are a lot of people in your life that they just weren't going to come out to a mass gathering at that stage of where we were in this last year. But they would totally be open to coming now. Invite them. Where there were people that you invited in February, and they just gave you an excuse and it didn't work, use this as an opportunity to invite them back. You know, one of the things that I've been thinking about this week, and this is just crazy to think about, but this is just the truth. There are people, maybe they're in this section here or here, or there are people sitting in this room right now whose best friend or parent or brother, someone in their life, is going to absolutely have their life completely transformed by Jesus Christ in this room seven days from now. It is absolutely going to happen. We have no idea who it is, but it's totally going to happen. And that's amazing, right? But it takes effort. Evangelism is hard work. It's hard sustained work. And I think that's one of the things that we get wrong about it in America. We just think, well, you know, I invited someone to church, or I tried to talk to them about God, and uh, it went really poorly, and I'll try again in like 17 years. Um, and that's this is kind of how we do it, right? Think about, okay, okay, this passage shows us that it's hard work. You, you go through obstacles. I mean, these guys, it's not like they were just stretchers laying around. They had to figure out, well, how are we even going to carry him? And how, where are we going to get rope? It's not like Jesus just probably came next door. They probably had to carry him all across town. They're working. They're sweating. It's hard work to share your faith. And then there are obstacles all along the way, right? So they work forever. They get their friend finally to the house, and it's full. So what do they do? They go, oh, well, we gave it the old college try. Let's go home, right? They don't. They don't give up. And you might invite someone this week, and they might say, ah, no, that's not happening. Should you just give up? Do these four men just turn around? No, don't give up. These four men, they climbed right up the stairs, start digging through the roof. And as soon as they do, they encounter yet another obstacle. You know what it was? I guarantee you that as soon as they start digging through the roof, people started to critique them, right? It's not like the owner of the house was like, oh, that's cool, carry on, right? (laughs) No way. People were probably losing their minds over that, saying, you can't do that. You need to stop. And I just want to tell you that if you are bold in your faith, you believe in the urgency of this, you will absolutely get critiqued. Some of your own family members will pull you aside and say, you need to stop talking to our other family members about this. You may get critiqued at work. The criticisms will come. But did these four men stop because of the presence of criticism? No. They would not rest until they could get their friend to Jesus. And don't you rest either. 
And nobody ever said that this was going to be easy. And if they did say that to you, I'm sorry, they lied to you. Uh, it's just usually not easy. Some of you who've been around this church for a long time have heard me say this before, but if you haven't, I've got to tell you this. Even in my own life, the very first time that someone witnessed to me and shared about Jesus with me, I responded by literally saying in an extremely angry voice, you have 10 seconds to get out of my house. And they went away crying. But listen, I don't know if you know this or not, I'm a pastor. (laughs) I came to Christ, right? And so even if someone this week says to you, No, I'm not coming. Even if they say to you, you have 10 seconds to get out of my house, don't you give up on them. I am so thankful that people did not give up on me. Don't give up on them. We have a mission, church. And we cannot shrink back just because there's a temporary obstacle. The city around us is dying and sin. And God wants to use you to rescue them. About three or four years ago, my, uh, my good friend Ryan Speck uh, sent me this video uh, about September 11th, actually, that just rocked my world. I thought, oh, man, this is so powerful. I thought, I, I got to share this with the church. And I've just been waiting for the right moment, the right time for years to share this video with you. And I never actually imagined that, that it would be the weekend also of September 11th. But I really want you to watch this video. Take a look. I thought I was watching a movie, Towering Inferno at first. And then I looked real close, and I noticed it was the World Trade Center. I was compelled because I'm a type of person that can't stand by and watch other people suffer. And to me, they were suffering. They wanted to get off the island. And there was no way for them to get off the island other than the water. And I had noticed when I was watching the television, I saw a lot of, you know, the ferries going up into the slips and taking people off. I said, fine, we could do the same thing. I could take people on my boat, get in there, take them where they have to go. And that's what we did. On the morning of September 11th, when the towers came down, millions of people ran for safety. Hundreds of thousands of them ran south to the water's edge. That's when they realized that Manhattan is indeed an island and that they were trapped. They were feeling helpless. And that's the worst feeling in the world. What was a person on the ground gonna do? Buildings were down. There were people laying under the rubble of the building. Firemen, civilians. My wife was there, and I turned around. I says, I've got to go do something. Just like that. And she looked at me. She says, what are you going to do, you maniac? I says, I'm going to take the Amberjack up into the city and help. She says, but what if they're attacked again? I says, well, then that's something I have to live with. I says, I have to do what I have to do. I says, and nobody can stop me right now. Even if I save one person or I rescue one person, that's one person less that will suffer and die. 
not an evacuate Manhattan because nobody knew what was going on. You know, you didn't know something else was going to happen. It was just, uh, you know, a madness on one side and, you know, and wanting to help people on the other side. They were just streaming out of the buildings. And the first mode of transportation they saw was a, a ferry boat. That's when they knew, this is how I'm getting out of here. They didn't even care where the boat was going. There wasn't panic in New York in the beginning, just volume. It wasn't until the first building fell that there was panic. You heard the building go down, but we're in the slip, so we can't see it. That's when we started letting go, and then all of a sudden, engulfed. You couldn't see anything. People were actually jumping into the river and swimming out of Manhattan. Boats were very nearly running them over. Wait, 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 wait. These people wanted out of Manhattan no matter any way they could. Somebody wants you to go over there. Every mode of transportation out of Manhattan was shut down. All the subways were shut. The tunnels were all closed. They closed the bridges. They closed everything immediately. Boats, usually an afterthought in most New Yorkers' minds, were for the first time in over a century the only way in or out of Lower Manhattan. The process that actually had already started, there were some boats that were grabbing people, that people were lined up at the walls. Most people running on the left, on the left, on the left. It's just human nature. You see people in distress on the seawall in Manhattan begging you to pick them up. You have to. You have to pick them up. They didn't know what was going on. They seen the building getting hit with these two planes. As far as they were concerned, you know, we were being bombed. I was wondering if they were going to come on the boat, if, if they were, had people with bombs or if they were going to come on. We're a big orange target in the middle of that harbor. My job is to keep the boat safe, my passengers safe, my crew safe. Everybody was in shock, running around. They didn't want to leave the family. They had loved ones running around the city. One guy ran from the apron and jumped onto the boat. He grabbed onto the metal, climbed up right next to the pilot. So I'm going out there to say something. He slides down to the next deck. So the, the deck hands get him and go, what, you know, what are you doing? He goes, I'm jumping for my life. So, you know, you couldn't argue with him there. There was a small boat that was uh, at the lower tip of Manhattan. I thought the boat was going to flip over because so many people were trying to get on. And as I looked behind, they were, they were just 10 deep. And that's kind of what gave us the idea. We decided that this has to get better organized and we better do it, and that's what we did. So we decided to make the call on the radio. All available boats. This is the United States Coast Guard board, the pilot boat in New York. Anyone want to help with the evacuation of Lower Manhattan? Report to Governor's Island. When that call came on the radio, they were coming. I was uncertain of who was going to respond. About 15, 20 minutes later, there are just boats all across the horizon. Literally 100 targets converging on the lower part of Manhattan. When we came out of that dust cloud, tugboats, I'd never seen so many tugboats all at once. They were just like a fleet of tugboats headed to Manhattan. If it floated and it could get there, it got there. All different size, shapes, and forms. I mean, and they were zooming across this water. 
ferries, private boats, party boats. I worked on the water for 28 years. I've never seen that many boats come together at one time that fast. One radio call and it just came together just that fast. You couldn't have planned nothing to happen that fast that quick. No training. This was just people doing what they had to do that day. You forget all about what you're supposed to do, what the teachers do, and you say, you know what? Morally, this is the right way to go, and deep down, this is what I'm gonna do. Average people, they stepped up and uh, when they needed to. They showed me, you know, when the American people need to come together and pull together, they will do it. I do feel a way honored that I was a part of it. That was the greatest thing I ever did with my life. The greatest day that I've ever seen in all my boating, I mean, my life on the water. The Great Boat Lift of 9-11 became the largest sea evacuation in history. Larger than the evacuation of Dunkirk in World War II, where 339,000 British and French soldiers were rescued over the course of nine days. On 9-11, nearly 500,000 civilians were rescued from Manhattan by boat. It took less than nine hours. <laughs> it's pretty amazing, huh? You know, when you, when you watch that video, you feel something, right? The feeling that you're feeling points to the fact that God has designed you to make a difference. That God has designed you to be a part of an even greater rescue mission. Yeah, I've watched this video a number of times now, and one of the things I think you do when you watch something like this is you ask yourself, what would I have done? Like if I was there, would I have stayed home? Would I have went? And I think as Christians, we can ask ourselves that question. If I had an opportunity to go and risk my life. I, I love the quote where the guy's, he's telling his wife he's gonna go, and she's like, you maniac? <laughs> right, there's a risk to it. But would you go? Because we have a mission. Renovation Church, God has put us in this city, in this county, for right now, for this moment, and we have a mission. So much of our church's life has led up to this week. Will you go? No one is saying this is going to be easy. But we do trust that our God is with us. We put our trust in him. Keep praying. Keep praying for your three people that we started praying for last week. If you weren't here, every single one of us is praying for three people. That they would meet Jesus Christ. And ultimately, we have to put our faith and trust in him. Come and pray with us this week. If we are going to see so many lives, the lives of our friends and family members turned around, raised from dead to life. We have to pray. And so what we're going to do, some of you have heard this say this, we are literally going to hold prayer meetings every single night this week, starting tonight, all the way through Saturday night, right here in this room from 6.30 to 7.30. We've never done this before, but we just believe that the Holy Spirit is going to move and we're going to ask him to. So I want every single person in this room, 100% of you, to come at least once this week, all right? Some of you are going to come two or three or four times. Some of you are going to be here every night. I want you all to come at least once and pray with us. 
If you can and you are willing, one of the things I even want to ask you to do is consider fasting on the day that you come. Fasting is the strongest form of prayer in Scripture. Have you never done that before? That we have an amazing sheet on our welcome table about fasting. How to do it for the first time. What does the Bible say about it? If you're like, oh, I got kids. We're going to have children's ministry every night this week. From nursery all the way up to six years old. We want you to come and pray. Let's come together. Let's come together. We have a mission. A rescue mission. This is a moment that we have been working for that we have been waiting for, that we have been praying for, for a long time. And now it's time to go. It's time to go out. It's time to trust that God can do immeasurably more than we can imagine. And if we do this, and if we come on our knees asking God to move, and then we go out like he can, then you are going to be blown away by what God does. Let me pray that he does that. Lord, we ask that you do immeasurably more than we can imagine. Move in this church. Move through us. Open our eyes to the fact that there is a rescue mission. God, I know that next Sunday and the Sunday after that and the Sunday after that and the Sunday after that, we are going to see people's own family members, their spouses, their adult children, people they've been playing for for years have their lives turned around in this room. We praise you in advance for that. Give us boldness to believe. When the obstacles come, may we not be disheartened. May we never give up. Whether it's seven days from now or seven years from now, may we not give up trusting that you can move, God. May we be a people of faith, a people who are reliant on you, Move, God, move in this church. It's in your name we pray. Amen.